Hey everyone, anytime I hear about major deforestation in the Amazon, I think, wow, the Ents there must suck at their job. Today's book is The Two Towers by George R. R. Martin. <laughs> I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and I was against conspiracy theories until I saw that the same guy made both this amazing trilogy and the awful Hobbit trilogy. <laughs> So that only makes sense with my new theory that the Hobbit movies were actually directed by Smeagol in order to make us not care about Bilbo anymore. And I'm David Vance. I love how the staunchly Catholic Tolkien made a saga full of Christian symbolism with hobbits who are always smoking some kind of weed. Two Towers teaches an important lesson for Sauron, Voldemort, Thanos, and the Spanish Empire. Don't put all your powers into jewelry. And this is the book pile. All right, quick sidebar uh, for any Tolkien fans who love this book. You can actually do your own quest of throwing a book pile review into the fires of the Apple podcast algorithm. And if you do, we'll send you some big ol' eagles. Uh, if you don't, we'll bite off your finger and do it ourselves. <laughs> This one's sort of an inside joke from the Stein Bean, uh, who says, Five stars. Kellen, you can keep the four and a half pints. <laughs> it's a callback from last week. Too late. They're on their way. <laughs> <laughs> Nittany Lion One says, This is the perfect thing to listen to when you need to be entertained during your daily menial tasks, like nursing twins every few hours. Okay, a very specific demographic. <laughs> okay, just a little reminder, we're going to be doing our first live book pile October 29th at Improv Broadway in Provo. And since it'll almost be Halloween, we're going to do a little Halloween special roasting New Moon from the Twilight series. So the good news is that is happening, and the bad news is I have to read New Moon. <laughs> yes, I haven't read it before twice. <laughs> Get your tickets at improvbroadway.com. Finally, our next two books are Physics of the Impossible and Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. I learned a good way to be popular is stop calling it the science of popularity. <laughs> All right. Without any further ado, here are our five favorite lessons from The Two Towers. All right. Lesson one. Popularity isn't just who you are, but where you are. So it's kind of that old idea, go where you're celebrated, not where you're tolerated. And I want to start by talking about Gollum. So picture if Gollum wants to hang out with Frodo and Sam in the Shire. It would be a hard no. He's creepy, he's violent, talks to himself, almost naked, killed his cousin, eats orcs. <laughs> they would never hang out with him in the Shire. But Gollum has a skill that Frodo and Sam value way higher when they're in Mordor, which is he knows Mordor. So now Frodo and Sam do want to hang out. So Gollum is more popular not because of who he is, but also where he is. <laughs> Gollum is like you're in high school and there's that super annoying friend, but they have a car <laughs> or, or their parents go out of town a lot. <laughs> Mark Manson talks about this, how status is actually context-specific. Like, if you're a brilliant scientist, you know, 
your status is way higher at the lab than on the football field. And I love that idea of go where your traits are most highly valued, which for Gollum is Mordor. It's sort of like that quote from Goldman Sachs Elevator where they said, if you are wittier than you are handsome, avoid loud clubs. (laughs) I have this happen with me. The difference between performing at a comedy club or just walking around in a Target. (laughs) It's like when I'm on stage, I'm this comedy superhero, but the moment that I walk out of the club, um, (laughs) the door catches my cape. (laughs) I just sort of walk out of my costume into the real world. All right, lesson two, build worlds within worlds. In our world, we call those globes. <laughs> Do you think that Christopher Nolan's spark for Inception was that he was just playing with a Russian doll and he was like, hold on a second. What if these were dreams? <laughs> so I mentioned in our Fellowship of the Ring episode that I appreciate the history that Tolkien is able to build retroactively by having characters pass by ancient ruins, which then remind them about a long, boring song. (laughs) By the way, I love how at the end of every song, the character will sing like 23 verses and then go, anyway, it's something like that. I don't remember the rest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a great out for Tolkien, the songwriter, to be like, and if you don't like it, uh, it was kind of lost in translation. (laughs) The original was much more beautiful. (laughs) But I do love the foundation of credibility that this does to build out a believable world and the precedent that it sets. It gives us context for future events. So, like the moment when King Theoden witnesses the Ents, the walking, talking trees, for the first time, he reacts by saying, Songs we have that tell of these things, which we've taught only to children as a careless custom. But now the songs have come down among us out of strange places and walk visible under the sun. Mm. I love again that there is this, it's a world built within a world. When he speaks of things walking out of songs, uh, it reminds me of like the girl in the ring coming out of a television set. (laughs) (laughs) I love that it gives us the layer of this world, which is a mythology unto itself, but it becomes even more real when we feel that this world itself has its own mythology. Yeah. And with that context, we feel King Theoden's wonder. With Tolkien's world building, all that mythology that exists in Middle-earth, you can just tell it's kind of that iceberg principle. Tolkien has thought about way more than what you're seeing on the page, and you feel that in every moment. Mm. Sometimes, if that thing is Tom Bombadil, you wish that it stayed off the page. (laughs) Yeah, the original Lord of the Rings manuscript was 9,000 pages, so... What? I want to see if Tom Bombadil made the cut... (laughs) <laughs> what's on the cutting room floor <laughs> yeah what what even more boring things exist in this story <laughs> it's just called all the obstacles run into by those eagles <laughs> sure is windy today <laughs> all right lesson three paint from life so we've talked about this before 
It's from Natalie Portman's masterclass, this idea of don't try to show what's in other books, show what's in your actual life, and that'll be way more honest, which is why all of my characters sit in their room typing all day. <laughs> so <laughs> Tolkien paints from life a ton. So the, the, the dead marshes are the swamp where you can see the bodies of the dead from an ancient battle. And Tolkien fought at the Battle of the Somme. And he has this sad quote where he says, the dead marshes owe something to northern France after the Battle of the Somme. So he's taking this terrible experience and putting it directly into his work. So I hope World War I was worth it for giving us that cool scene. <laughs> the Battle of the Somme was also the first battle with tanks. And when Tolkien writes the Battle of Gondolin, John Garth points out that he's basically describing tanks. There are these iron dragons that carry orcs inside and they seem to have tank treads that go above obstacles and their hollow bellies clang but they can't be broken so you know all of fantasy is mimicking tolkien tolkien is mimicking hell <laughs> another thing as a kid tolkien was bitten by just a big old tarantula and people were like oh that's where you got shelob right and he's like no i don't even remember it but my son michael was terrified of spiders and i wanted to scare him <laughs> oh, wow so Kellen changes the sad parts of books to not scare his kids. Tolkien magnifies his kids' biggest fears and prints them in books. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where uh, Steven Spielberg produced the first Poltergeist movie. He didn't uh, direct it as um, people credit him for it's not good enough to have been made by him but he is responsible <laughs> for a lot of the big scare pieces so he had a clown doll that he was afraid of as a kid but he also said that there was a tree outside his window and when the wind would blow its branches would scrape the panes and that's oh, why man. there is that literal scene in the movie of the tree reaching through the window and grabbing the child <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> anyway, the broad takeaway here is his work was so much more honest and interesting because he was drawing from things in his actual life. Like how he once tricked a fisherman out of his ring with a dishonest riddle. <laughs> or how he once got revenge on a bully by waking an army of the undead. <laughs> Or how he, like Frodo, after a lifetime of struggle, decided to escape into a world of fantasy. <laughs> we did 1984 a few weeks ago. I like that Tolkien and Orwell both lived through those wars. <laughs> and Orwell was like, I'm going to write the bleakest book imaginable. And Tolkien's like, I'm going to pretend things are okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lesson four. Big things can go wrong as long as little things go right. In a good story, bad things happen. Otherwise, it's not a story. It's if you give a mouse a cookie. <laughs> the bad things happening in if you give a mouse a cookie are little child learns about exponential growth. <laughs> <laughs> I think they did do that story, and it's called If You Give a Hitler Poland. <laughs> The whole strategy of appeasement was like, if we just don't do anything, maybe he'll stop. <laughs> this has been a huge tangent. <laughs> Which is what that give a mouse a cookie story is. For sure that 
That author didn't even mean to write a story. It was just someone with crazy ADHD, like scribbling on a napkin. (laughs) So in a good story, adventure turns to misadventure. An X-Wing pilot loses all his fellow pilots, or a vest-wearing rascal goes to the desert to find an ancient artifact, which ends up releasing an evil power. Of course, I'm referring to Brendan Fraser and the mummy. So adversity... It's a staple in classic stories, but I think that the best stories use mishaps as breadcrumbs that still lead us to that satisfying conclusion. So some examples in The Lord of the Rings, Merry and Pippin's unfortunate capture enables them to learn the inner conflicts between orc tribes, takes them to Fangorn where they plant the seed. <clears throat> of war for the trees against Sourman. <laughs> Pippin's mistake of looking into the Palantir, that crystal ball thing, it's traumatic for him, and for sure he needed years of Hobbit therapy afterward. But from that, they learn more about Sauron's specific intentions. I'll say about the Palantir, it's sweet how much effort Gandalf goes to limit Pippin's screen time. <laughs> What's funny to me is that in the book... The reason that they even have access to the to the Palantir is just because Wormtongue was looking for something heavy to throw at them from the tower. <laughs> he was literally just trying to hit one of them. <laughs> it would be like like if someone was going to attack your house and you were at the second story window, like let's crush them with this safe full of money. <laughs> I'm going to throw my Bitcoin thumb drive at them. <laughs> drop drop anything you could find. Laptops, electric guitars. During the scene in the book, Saruman starts off with his, you know, powers of charm to try and persuade all of them to follow him. And then he eventually cracks when Gandalf isn't buying it. And that's when Wormtongue in desperation throws this thing down at them. It would have been funny if you heard some scuffle up there and then Saruman got nice again and he's like, would you mind throwing that back up here? (laughs) I really, really need to FaceTime Sarah, a friend of mine. (laughs) And there's there's a lot of my personal stuff on there, so don't don't flip through anything. It's almost this idea that turning a good thing into a bad thing is how writers create conflict, but turning a bad thing into a good thing is how writers create meaning. So Merry and Pippin have this awful thing happen where they get kidnapped. Gandalf has this awful thing happen where he falls down a chute and dies. (laughs) (laughs) But then both of those things are ultimately alchemized into things that are very meaningful and helpful for them in the story. And that's exactly what I was going to say word for word. So that's my takeaway from this point. <laughs> Good takeaway. <laughs> Very wise. You, you, made, <laughs> you made a good takeaway out of my bad point. <laughs> All right, lesson five. Don't think you're special. <laughs> so this is a short one. One of the recurring themes of the series is... Everyone wants to think the ring won't corrupt them. <laughs> so Isildur, Saruman, even a little bit Gandalf and Galadriel, Boromir, even Frodo gets corrupted by the end. Everyone wants to think they're the exception. And we kind of do it too. So Daniel Kahneman talks about how 
we all think the stats don't apply to us, <laughs> you know, because we're we're so special that our startup has a better chance than other startups. <laughs> but I, I love this quote from James Russell Lowell. He says, whatever you may be sure of, be sure of this, that you are dreadfully like other people. <laughs> all right, random facts. So I get the vibe that Tolkien didn't super love technology. Because, you know, he fights in World War I, lives through World War II, so he sees chlorine gas, tanks, nukes. And in the books, only Saruman develops tech, and he becomes evil, and he bulldozes the forest. Hmm. So I love that Peter Thiel has now named, like, five tech companies after Lord of the Rings. (laughs) (laughs) So Palantir helps find drone targets. Anduril, which Thiel backed helps catch undocumented immigrants. So it's cool how Tolkien now just loves tech. <laughs> so you know how Elon Musk's electric car company is named Tesla? Mm-hmm. There, There is this rival electric car company that called themselves Nikola, but they lost most of their investors. After they showed this demo video of one of their semi-trucks, traveling down a highway, and then uh, someone who was fired from their company revealed that the engine wasn't actually running, and it that section of highway was on a decline, but the camera was <laughs> tilted as well. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I got to hand it to him. Gravity does not use gas. <laughs> so the actor Reese Davies... Is that how you say his name? I don't know. You know, he's Indiana Jones's guide in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. He shows up in The Last Crusade. Princess Diaries, the classics. <laughs> so he's also Gimli, uh, but he also voiced Treebeard. Really? Yeah, Peter Jackson had him speak as low as he could in his register and through a megaphone made of wood. Wow. Yeah. So he plays the character who wields the axe and the character who should be most scared of the axe. <laughs> yeah, I guess that that really is a Gollum Smeagol situation. So it's funny that Gollum, his ultimate act of treachery is he lures them into the trap of a giant spider. Whereas that's just what Hagrid does to his only friends. <laughs> Also, his relationship with those 11-year-olds is weird, right? Like, imagine you meet a 60-year-old man and you're like, hey, who are your three best friends? (laughs) So in the movies, not the Hobbit ones where all the orcs are CGI, but in the this trilogy where they're all terrifying and and real, it's all practical, you know, makeup and prosthetics. And the, the way that they were able to get that like dark saliva is that they would gargle with black licorice mouthwash gross which is <laughs> it's horrible that that's even like a real product <laughs> i still believe black licorice was just a prank that the pioneers played on each other <laughs> yeah. i i think i would have been a great orc because like i wouldn't have had to even try acting once i gargled with that stuff <laughs> I would I would just be like angry and groaning for the rest of that shoot day. I love the idea of the method orc 
who does eat maggoty bread for three stinking days. <laughs> It'd be funny if there was one of the cast member orcs. He's the only one with like pristine teeth. <laughs> and the guys are like, Trevor, did you use peppermint again? <laughs> So you know how in the movie you have all the exciting war stuff intercut with kind of the slower Frodo and Sam stuff? Mm. In the book, it's first the war stuff and then all the Frodo and Sam stuff. (laughs) Because you know how in a story you want to start big and then steadily reduce excitement? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I will say that the movie does a great job uh, of with the back and forth because reading this with my nine-year-old son... We were a good, like, 250 pages into the two towers when my son Desmond was like, so wait, where's Frodo? <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought of it from that standpoint that book one sets up, the ring is the most important thing, we must destroy it, and then the first half of book two does not deal with the ring. <laughs> yeah, it's like, let's go back to this random king. It'd be like if Luke left Tatooine and then the camera stays on Tatooine. (laughs) (laughs) For the sound design for the Orc War Chant, Peter Jackson took a sound crew to a live cricket match in New Zealand. Wow. And he coordinated it with the 25,000 fans in the stadium to all chant the Durgu Nashashu Durgabu. Yeah. So that's what you what you're hearing there is uh, you know it's just as voluminous as the uh you know as the the army that you're seeing. Wow. Can I do a quick sidebar about mm. how cricket is so much more exciting than I thought? Oh. So I used to think Cricket was baseball for people who like soccer, <laughs> which <laughs> I was like, I want no part of any of that. My my girlfriend and I watched this movie, Lagan, about a, a cricket team in India. Man, it's a really interesting sport to me. I'm still not act- like actively watching cricket, but I was much more engaged than I expected to be. My joke about cricket is that it doesn't do the sport any service when you name it after the reaction that gets when I'm watching it. (laughs) All right, so Merry and Pippin get kidnapped, and Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli run down the orcs to save their friends. But first, they sing some long songs for Boromir. (laughs) I just remember even as a kid feeling like, They didn't grasp the urgency of the moment. (laughs) So I just found out that Nicolas Cage was originally offered the part of Aragorn. Oh my gosh. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) Like single-handedly discredited the entire film series. (laughs) I think Nick Cage... He's surprising enough that it's possible he might have done a great job. No, that's true. Yeah, he is very hit or miss. Well, he's very hit or miss, 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 miss. <laughs> so I can't do a Nicolas Cage, but I imagine it would be something like, that is no trinket you carry. Like his <laughs> his acting is like they say acting is all about choices, but he just seems like well, whatever comes to mind. <laughs> Durgbu, Nashishu. That's no <laughs> that's Nick Cage as an orc. 
<laughs> All right, to recap, our five favorite lessons from the two towers. One, popularity isn't just who you are, but where you are. Two, build worlds within worlds. Three, paint from life. Four, big things can go wrong as long as little things go right. Five, don't think you're special. And six, national treasure could have also been called the return of the king. Mm-hmm.